0: So here's the thing I think will happen, I hope will happen, and if I could clone myself and (laughs) had a little bit more of an entrepreneurial drive, I would be all over this because what I think we'll see is not too long in the future, we will all be wearing devices that improve sleep and especially slow wave sleep, that deep sleep that happens in the beginning of the night that we think is probably more important for our memories than any other type of sleep.
1: That was Dr. Jessica Payne speaking about devices she sees in the future that will help improve our sleep, which will also improve our brain function and memory. That's just one of the things we'll discuss on this episode, episode number 54 of Looking Forward. Welcome to Looking Forward, where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward. If you're like me you're fascinated by trends in the future in fact several years ago that was one of the things i focused on in a book i wrote hi everyone welcome to looking forward today we're going to discuss a topic that affects every one of us our brains more specifically we're going to look at memory sleep and our brains in part one of this two-part series we looked at what we've learned in recent years about the brain and its capacity to remember things, what purposes memories serve, some things you can do to improve your memory, and other things too. In part two, we're going to discuss how COVID-19 is affecting our brains, sleep, and memory, what future advances we might expect to see in those areas, and what opportunities all of that might offer to those looking for a new job, career, or entrepreneurial endeavor, or investment idea. To help us explore this hugely important subject, we've brought on a highly qualified expert. She's Dr. Jessica Payne. Dr. Jessica Payne is Professor of Psychology and the Andrew J. McKenna Family Collegiate Chair at the University of Notre Dame, where she directs the Sleep, Stress, and Memory Lab. Her research focuses on how sleep and stress independently and interactively influence learning, memory, emotion, and creativity. She teaches various courses in psychology and neuroscience, including a popular course entitled The Sleeping Brain, for which she won Harvard University's Bach Center Award for Teaching Excellence, and Notre Dame's Frank O'Malley Award for Undergraduate Teaching and Service. Dr. Payne is also dedicated to applying her research findings to business organizations, striving to help leaders understand how to work with, rather than against, the natural abilities of the human brain. Her work has been profiled in the New York Times, Business Week and MSN, Scientific American, The Huffington Post, CNN, USA Today, Bloomberg Business Week, National Geographic, and many other media outlets. Dr. Payne's postdoctoral fellowship was split between Harvard Medical School's Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Harvard University's psychology department. She holds a PhD in psychology and cognitive neuroscience from the University of Arizona. When we left off last time, Dr. Payne was speaking about when we should begin to worry about whether we are losing our ability to remember things.
0: Science really is where you shine the spotlight. So first of all, and you have to ask yourself, you know, when you're 40 or 60, is it really as important that you remember things in exactly the way they were presented to you anymore? Or is it more important that you use it to negotiate a complex world? Though I do think just like everything, you know, things do start to decline in older age. But we have to differentiate normal age-related memory decline, which is exactly what you're talking about. It's you know forgetting somebody's name and kicking yourself because you can't remember it. It's misplacing your keys more often. But the way we know, this is just a heuristic, but when somebody goes from forgetting where they put their keys to forgetting what keys are, oh. that is a massive red flag. Same with you know we can all get a little lost sometimes even in our own neighborhood <laughs> especially now that we all use google maps it's almost like our brains forgotten how to navigate mm-hmm. but getting you know temporarily turned around versus really if you find yourself not knowing where you are those are the types of distinctions that we start to care about when it comes to things like dementia and alzheimers and, and other forms of dementia as opposed to what's considered normal and everybody's going to suffer that age related memory decline at different rates there are a lot of researchers who are interested in trying to figure out how to stave that off for longer, how to prevent it so that at least it doesn't hit you until you're much longer. That's true in the dementia space as well. And so that's another hotbed of research. You know, the jury's still out, but but seriously, you know, keeping your mind active is so important. Um, one of the things people may not know about is the importance of social support. You know, we're a social species. we involve, we, we evolved in social groups. Loneliness is truly deadly. And it impacts everything, including the brain. And of course, the brain is what supports all cognition. Sleep, you know, sleep also starts to change as you age. If, if there's a way we can improve people's sleep, that might stave off memory decline until later. And exercise is, exercise, is, is, exercise and, and sleep are, I think, the two closest things to panacea that exist as far as keeping your, your brain in shape, not to mention your body, right? But I'm a neuroscientist. So so yes, I mean, I hope that answers the question, but really you do does. have a relative, <laughs> okay, good.
1: It really does. And sleep and exercise seem to be two things where there really isn't this debate, like is coffee good or not good for you? No, Right. sleep and exercise are good. I wanna ask you one other question about that, and then we're gonna get into COVID and some okay. other things. I'm sure you've seen these. Years ago, up to the present day, I've seen many books about how to improve your memory. Mm -hmm. Now you see on YouTube, all these courses about you can take so-and-so's course. He's got an incredible memory. She's got an incredible memory. Just take their course. And now supplements. Here are these supplements you can take that are going to prevent the decline in your memory, in your cognition as you age. Mm -hmm. Is any of this really going to help an individual? Are these enhancements, if I call them that, are any of them really worthwhile without having you mention brands or anything like that? Are these books, are these supplements, these courses, are they really going to help a person?
0: You know, I mean, I guess the short answer is a very depressing no. Mm. But again, the jury's still out. So I I, look, I'm a scientist, a dyed-in-the-wool scientist. I need to see something replicated at least 10 times before I believe it. And most of the science on these supplements, most of the science on these brain training programs is it's spotty at best. I'm certainly not convinced. Now, look, the thing about doing one of the brain training programs is I I do think that keeping your mind active and and as sharp as you can, it's sort of a use it or lose it thing. I actually do think that there's evidence that it it may, may not be what they claim, but it's probably good for you, just like learning another language or trying to, you know, start playing a musical instrument. Anything you do to utilize your brain is is going to be beneficial. If you can do that in a social setting, that may be even better. But the problem with some of these brain training programs, now I believe there's a chance that we'll figure this out going forward, or at least I'm hopeful. I'm just not convinced yet because my reading of that literature is what sometimes happens is you will get better at whatever the little task is they have you practicing on the screen, but it doesn't really generalize. And because it doesn't generalize, it's not going to help you with memory tasks that are important in the real world. So that is one of the downfalls right now. Um, and again, I'm really not an expert in this. It might be interesting for you to talk to somebody who is, and yes. I may even be able to make a couple recommendations because I think the scientists who are studying this are a little more hopeful than I am, but that's because they're seeing progress as they work on these brain games and they work on these programs. And hopefully they're seeing more promising results. But as a group, you know, or sort of as a, as a general idea, I say, save your money and the supplements too. Now there hasn't been a lot of work on it. And what's been done is, is again, like very, not very compelling. But again, I, when I talk about the way people do science, it's like, you know, comparing a young group to an older group, of course, the young group is normally going to do better. But there's another way of doing that science, which is you double or triple the sample size and just look at the older people and then you look at the variation within them. Find the outliers or find the people who are actually doing better and then start to study their genetics and their lifestyle. And that's probably a more meaningful way to do this work, at least when it comes to some scientific questions and in the same way. The typical sort of ANOVA this is a statistic that we use you know design would be to take a group who's not on the supplement and then the one that is and then maybe you do a crossover and hopefully hopefully it's double blind so people don't know what they're getting and what happens is we find out that on average it doesn't work you know the supplement doesn't work but again sometimes if you get into the data you know it just because on average the supplement group wasn't better than the control group it does seem in some of these studies, like there are some people for whom they seem to work. So individual variation in our biology is so dramatic. Nice. It's, it's sort of like, think about any medication, you know, antidepressants, you know, one will work for one person, but not another. We just all metabolize these things in so many different ways that I'm not ready to write these off completely yet, because I just think we need to do a lot more science and potentially better science to get these questions Answered. But again, I mean, for the listener, no, I don't know that you need to go investing hundreds and hundreds of dollars in Ginkgo biloba or something like that in the hope that you're going to impact your memory because the science just isn't convincing yet.
1: Well, thanks for sharing that. Those are good insights and the individuality reminded me again of diabetes. Some people can eat a pizza and have no problem. I mean, even people with diabetes might eat a pizza and it won't bother their sugar, and other people will go through the roof because right. we process the foods differently. Well, Jess, we all know that COVID 19 has had a dramatic effect on many people's sleep, their levels of yes. stress, and their general well being. Absolutely. So I'm wondering if you could share with us. From your perspective, because you're studying this stuff, what impact do you think COVID-19 might be having on our memories, our processing of memories? And I would add in something else. Is this, and I'm not talking necessarily about the long haulers, is this something that people who really didn't get COVID or had a very mild case of it might have to deal with throughout their lives? Is this a memory issue or will they come out of it as you're hoping with your young child, uh, your life will get a little bit easier and you'll remember yeah. things better? <laughs>
0: right. hope so. We'll see if it bounces back. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, COVID has, you're right, it has had a huge impact on people in terms of their stress, in terms of their sleep, in terms of their general wellness. And to, to be completely honest with you, I don't know how to answer that question yet because it hasn't been long enough for those data to get collected and properly analyzed and published. But I can tell you what I suspect, or at least one thing that I suspect will happen, because it's all related, as we just discussed, you know, if you're under high levels of stress, and your sleep's being affected, you've been so isolated because of the pandemic, we talked about how important social support is for the brain, you know, all of it affects memory, all of it affects the brain. And so all of it is going to affect things like memory, not to mention other forms of of cognition. And so what I suspect, and I don't think this will necessarily be long lasting for everybody, although I think it w- it could be for people who have been disproportionately affected. But what I suspect is that, you know, we were all under such threat for so long and the ambiguity, the uncertainty, the human brain hates uncertainty. And as you you know, so many people lost their jobs. We didn't know how we were ever going to get through it. I mean, we didn't know that they'd get a vaccine as fast as they did. And and just sort of incubating in that kind of uncertainty for a long time is very difficult for the human brain. I think that's where consciousness kind of becomes, it can backfire. you know, Because you can speculate and ruminate and worry, and that's also unhealthy. And so what I suspect is that that will take a while, you know, for people to sort of unwind and process and get through. Because what I saw happening was this, it's a natural inclination for human beings when they're under threat and especially when they're dealing with that kind of ambiguity is to be biased toward the negative and you know that's adaptive if you're under threat you know again taking us back to evolutionary times if you know if you were out on the savannah and there was some massive wild cat hunting you you you're being under threat would potentially save your life right and so Of course, you want to be focused on the negative and you're probably not going to be sleeping and you're probably going to be highly stressed. And all of that is essential for your survival. That's not just essential for that individual who's being tracked by a cat. It was essential for our species. The problem, I think, is that what is a good thing in the short term, which is your ability to focus on the negative and focus on a threat, it's really problematic when it goes on too long.
1: Mm.
0: And so there's such a thing as too much of a good thing. And that's where this highly adaptive type of mental bias becomes maladaptive over the long run. And so I do worry that it's going to take people a while to get out of that threat state, I think a lot of us are wondering. I mean, there's this new variant. Obviously, we're still worried about it. When would might this happen again? There's no law in the universe that says we're only going to face a pandemic once every hundred years. For other people, what does this mean for the future of my work? You know, uh, there. I just think there's so much insecurity and ambiguity out there that it does lead to negativity. And negativity, again, from sort of a cognitive and clinical perspective, can over time lead to mental health conditions like depression. Like anxiety, you know, and other conditions where this negativity is just a hallmark symptom of them. And that's where you take something like your ability to process and remember the negative and even worry about the threat is very, very adaptive in the short run. But if that system, which is your stress system, if it's left on for too long, um, that starts to wreak havoc on the brain and the body because our stress systems evolved. To, to flicker on and off. I mean, again, going back to the lion or whatever in the savannah, you got stressed, you processed the threat, you figured out how to survive it or not, right? And so you either got away and then the stress system sort of clicked back off and came back down or you got eaten <laughs> and then it wasn't an issue anymore. Right, but, no problem. <laughs> you know, these modern conditions where you've got a pandemic that goes on for so long and then all the ruminations and the legitimate worries and the cognitions that go along with that You're taking a stress system that never evolved to be switched on uh, and stay on. And that is just absolutely terrible for the brain to have it being bathed in these stress hormones all the time. It's also bad for the body. And that leads not only to some physical problems, but also to these mental health conditions because people start to get stuck in that threat state or they get stuck in that state of high stress and anxiety or they develop a sleep disorder like insomnia, which now becomes really difficult to battle. So that is one of the things that I think we're going to be we're going to be dealing with for a long time. And yet at the same time, you have to remember that the human brain is also incredibly adaptive. It's plastic. It can bounce back. You know, I've seen incredible resilience. Uh, you know, people I've started to travel again a little bit and just people helping each other has been really heartening. I mean, so I I'm, I'm I feel like I'm watching the human species bounce back and and capitalize on the fact that the brain is so flexible and that we can rewrite the narrative and not get stuck in the threat and the depression and the sadness and the fear and use it as an opportunity to grow and move forward. And I do see a lot of that happening as well.
1: Well, I'm glad that you ended that with some encouragement. But there's certainly good reason for concern. And, And in your conversation there, what you were saying, Jess, You also talked about something that may not be as brand new as some of the other trends you talked about, but just the awareness that we have that I know didn't exist when I was younger, that we can grow new brain cells. That's right. I mean, that's That's a tremendous thing to know. Not only the malleability, but that we can grow new brain cells is a tremendous thing to know.
0: You're right. And that may not be the last 20 years or so, but really, I mean, even I learned what was dogma, you know, back in the nineties was that, yeah. You basically, once you hit a certain age, probably 25, that was all the brain cells you were ever going to have. And it was all downhill from there. right? (laughs) And now we know that even into people's 80s, you have two forms of plasticity, one which we've all known about, which is the dendrites, which are part of your neurons that look like these beautiful trees that stretch out and make connections with other neurons that help them communicate. Those can shrink you know, under high levels of stress or poor sleep or other factors, but they can also branch back out again. That flexibility is there. It's recoverable up to a certain state. But what you're talking about, which you're right, it's a little bit more than the last two decades, but we now know that you can actually give birth to brand new brain cells. It's called neurogenesis. It's another form of plasticity, and it is a hopeful one. You know, It only happens in a couple places in the brain that we know of. One is the hippocampus, incidentally, which is mm. the memory structure. But it is amazing that something that we thought was simply not possible, you know, 20, 30 years ago, we now know is normal and happens well into the later years.
1: It's very exciting. Speaking of exciting, we're now going to get into the essence of looking forward. And part of why it's called looking forward is because we're looking into the future. And I want you to peer into the future Here you are, most days, not all days, (laughs) delving into what's happening with our brains when we sleep, what's happening to our memories, how is stress affecting us, and other things I'm sure that you're examining. So if you were to forecast in some way, Jess, what changes or trends we're going to see in our understanding of how the brain works and how we might improve our memories What might you posit that we will see?
0: So here's the thing I think will happen, I hope will happen. And if I could clone myself and (laughs) had a little bit more of an entrepreneurial drive, I would be all over this. Because what I think we'll see is not too long in the future, we will all be wearing devices that improve sleep and especially slow wave sleep, that deep sleep that happens in the beginning of the night that we think is probably more important for our memories than any other type of sleep. It's a little oversimplified. But the more you deepen this sleep and the more you consolidate it so that it, you get a lot of it all at once, and the brain waves associated with that are bigger and there's more of it, the better your memory is. Mm. And there are, I mean, again, this is tentative, but there is really promising research out there showing that there are potentially different ways to upregulate this slow wave sleep to make it denser, to make it better. And you can do that through some sorts of sounds. You can do it through, you know, very low level like electricity uh, or magnetic stimulation. You know, right now we're using that for research purposes because the question is, okay, if we stimulate this brain state like slow wave sleep and we make it more intense, will that then help memory even more than just normal slow wave sleep does? It's, you know, sort of this, this uh, hacked slow wave sleep to make it better. And there's a lot of promising evidence that it does. And right now, You know, it's a cumbersome setup, but I can imagine that some really clever, creative entrepreneurs will figure out how to manufacture small, easy to use, wearable devices that are safe that maybe one day we'll all be using. Because I really do believe that if you can protect your sleep and stave off the age-related changes in sleep that most of us encounter, you may be able to better stave off that memory decline we were talking about. And not to mention all the health things slow wave sleep does for your immune regulation and a whole bunch of other things that sleep does. So that is actually one of the things that I think is the most promising. I I would be shocked if in the next, I don't know whether it'll be 20 years or 30 years or a little more, maybe a little less, that we'll have these devices. Also, you know, I do think the work that's going on in the space of these brain training games, I still think that that's a real plausible avenue for increased memory and increased performance. I think they just have to figure out how to get it right. Um, So that's still a really interesting space to watch, even though I haven't found it to be all that convincing yet. And, you know, then it sounds simple, but just continuing to get the word out to corporations and just to the culture at large, that these continued efforts to make people understand how the brain works and how it doesn't and why minimizing stress is important. You know, taking them through the data, showing them how the brain actually works, helping them understand that stress really does get under the skin, that it's very, very real, teaching them the importance of sleep, teaching them the importance of exercise, really getting into the why and then creating cultures and corporations that allow a little bit more space for these things are sure to improve performance and increase employee satisfaction and make for just a healthier uh, species. So I I think that we're going to see more and more education in that space. And of course, that's one of the things I'm so
1: committed to. I hope you're right about that. I would love to see every soon-to-be parent- some yeah. education about how important it is that their children get enough sleep, and then mm-hmm. in the schools the kids would learn also about how important it is to get sleep. Couple quick follow-up questions, and we'll move on. One would be, if people were to get these devices. First, mm-hmm. I should say, if the devices happen and people right. get them, and they sleep better, could you see an increasing? Life expectancy, possibly.
0: I mean, I do think that that is possible. I, look, I do. I am one of these people who think there's this, there's a hard limit on how long we're going to live. You know, call it a hundred years. I'm not convinced that we're going to extend it much beyond that. For me, though, it's really quality over quantity. Yeah. So if you can live a hundred years or ninety years or eighty-five years, but you are sharp and healthy and you feel good right up until the end, isn't that so much better than you know? Developing uh, dementia, which, by the way, that has a genetic, you know, factor to it. That I'm not claiming that these devices would help with that necessarily. I think that they would help with the more normal memory decline we see with aging. But if you could, if you could actually postpone the worst of that until later, um, maybe you'd still die at about the same time. Although that's an open question. I I wouldn't be surprised if we could actually change and better people's sleep architecture that they'd live a little longer. I wouldn't be surprised about that. But even if that weren't the case. I think they would live better while they were still alive. And that, for me, is is just as important, you know. Yeah. And it's, you know, you said you're right. You're talking about sleep education in schools. I mean, think about it. When was the last time your primary care physician asked you how you're sleeping?
1: You know, it, it doesn't happen unless you're really very stressed right. and they would want to know what's going on. So, I don't hear it. Exactly. Exactly. And I sleep, is a,
0: it's, a, it's a barometer of health. It's a barometer of mental and physical health. So I do think we've just got a lot of education to do around what sleep even is. You know, it's this thing that takes up a third of our lives. Trust me, it's doing a lot that's important. And it goes beyond the brain and cognitive stuff that we're talking about today.
1: Yes. I'm actually going to take my other question and move it into my last question before we let people know how they can get in touch with you. Okay. The other aspect of looking forward is its positive orientation. We're looking forward to something. And you've expressed some optimism in some cases here. You talked about the device that may be created by some entrepreneurial people. Mm -hmm. I guess I want to set the stage, and we're going to come back to that. And that is that I don't have to tell you, Jess, about how many people have lost their jobs due to Mm -hmm. COVID. yeah. You teach students who are trying to figure out what do I do with the rest of my life? Exactly. And then we've got people who are not happy in their careers or they don't like where they're working and they're thinking of taking up something else. Maybe they're going to go back to school. And thank goodness, we always have those entrepreneurs and investors. Okay. Right. So I'm going to lead you in a direction, but I don't want you to necessarily stay there. And the direction is, I would like you to talk a little bit more about the opportunity that might exist for those devices that help us sleep better, but I would also like to overlay that with a question about, do you think that pharmaceutical companies who are always looking for great opportunities either are or will be working on pills that you can take that will do that sort of thing? But that's just a jumping off point. I want you to look at any kind of opportunity. Where would you have your students, new job seekers, entrepreneurs look to in the space in which you operate?
0: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think the pharma companies are gonna continue to um, innovate in this space. And I think maybe the pills that people take for insomnia will get better. They're already a little bit better. I mean, we've gone from using benzodiazepines, which are still used, but I mean, that's kind of like a sledgehammer to the entire central nervous system in the brain. You know, now we've got things like Ambien Sonata, Lunesta, all of these drugs that are actually a little bit more par- targeted, uh, a, a little bit less addictive. So I do think there will be continued iteration in the pharma space for sure. And I also think there will be continued innovation around not just the, the type of stimulating devices that will help improve sleep architecture what we were just talking about, but also around better CPAP. So CPAP is, it's for people who have sleep apnea, which is again, increasingly common, only getting more common as people get heavier, more common in men, because men tend to carry their weight sort of up higher. You know, you think the barrel chest and really anything that puts weight on your neck though, puts you at risk for this. And even if that's muscle, I've seen this in football players, for instance, it's very uh-huh. co- young football players, very common. Uh-huh. Anything that collapses the airway. So what, what an apnea is, is a complete cessation of breathing. And so what that means is every time that happens, your brain is deprived of oxygen. And in the worst cases that just are not all that uncommon, you will see these happening a hundred times an hour. And so when people say, wow, I sleep all the time, but I never feel rested, I automatically, for me, that raises the specter of sleep apnea because the typical apnea sufferer doesn't, they won't remember it, but the brain actually has to alert very briefly in order to get a breath but the person doesn't remember it. So when you again, when you look at their sleep histogram, instead of seeing the nice different stages of sleep that they're cycling through, you just see awakening, 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 awakening. So the brain is not sleeping and then they're sleeping longer trying to get the sleep they need. You actually see that sometimes in some forms of clinical depression as well. People who feel like they need to sleep all the time, it's almost always because they're not sleeping enough.
1: Mm.
0: So you know, CPAP is this con- continuous positive airway pressure I'm sure you've seen the masks that yes. some people sleep in. There's already a lot of innovation going on in that space. And there needs to be, you know, and because they need to make those devices more comfortable, more tolerable, better humidified, smaller, more portable. Because again, not only will that help the many, many apnea suffer- sufferers out there who incidentally do need to be encouraged to lose weight, because honestly, even a little bit of weight loss for many people, it happens in your face first, right? And around the neck first. So yeah. even, even minimal weight loss can sometimes really help improve the apnea scores, but these little CPAP devices that, you know, basically blow your airway open so that you're getting a lot more oxygen and you can breathe. Not only will that help the millions of apnea sufferers, but there's a little part of me that wonders, would it not help again, like middle-aged people who are they don't have apnea exactly, you know, maybe they have a couple of these events a night, but it's not enough to be clinical worrisome, but you know, they're snoring a lot and clearly their brain isn't getting enough oxygen. So again, one day, would we are we all going to be wearing them? Because again, it improves our sleep quality and it deepens your slow wave sleep and it prevents fragmentation in REM sleep, which is really common with apnea. And so can you imagine if that industry becomes, if it goes beyond the medical to be more of a a cognitive improvement, you know, sort of a wow. performance hacking type of, of device. I can see that. So you see, I have these ideas, I just don't have time to pursue them. But <laughs> if those things, yes, if they help people live a, a little bit longer, or at least live a lot more healthfully while they're still alive, I think there's a huge market for those. And then, you know, you mentioned this, but it COVID is no exception. I mean, times like this, great financial crisis, you know, there have been many times where these are terrifying times. And I, of course, I have nothing but But sympathy for uh, people who have lost their jobs, and and that's terrible. And you know, I think we're all really eager to get fully past the economic ramifications of COVID. But what I can almost promise you is that we are going to see such incredible innovation that we're going to see. You know, I don't know the next Amazon is probably being born because of this, because the all of this suffering and struggling really forces invention. And it also, a lot of people will go back to school during this. They'll use it as an opportunity to switch careers, especially if they don't like the one they're in. So as devastating as it's been, I also do expect it to create a lot more opportunity. And I just encourage people to reach for those, you know, maybe use some of the stimulus money to to look into a new career, to take a few classes, even take a few online classes uh, in order to improve oneself or at least come up with different options for careers on the other side of this. So I do think that there's just a lot that's going to go on in the innovation space, and that goes well beyond sleep and memory and stuff like that. And also, I think we'll have a lot of people going back to school and finding new things to be passionate about.
1: Yes, I appreciate your optimism. One quick follow-up. You're a neuroscientist. Yes. What opportunities are going to exist For students who want to major in something related to that and then get into that field, or for companies that employ neuroscientists and study the brain, I would think there'd be a lot of that too.
0: It's coming and I'm surprised it's not here yet because you can imagine having brain coaches at companies that could become standard. You know, teaching (laughs) all the stuff that I go out and do these workshops or these lectures, you could have an in house person, you know, really almost like a coach, but helping people understand their brain, how it best works for them, what they need to do to you know, leverage all their potential. I think there's obviously a ton of opportunity in the sort of neuroscience meets tech space around prosthetics. Um, there's a ton sort of in the space what, that, that, that I'm in, which is just basically educating people on what really hardly anybody knows. I think that there's a, just a huge, huge, huge opportunity as far as pharma goes it really, I mean, neuroscience is what I consider to be a hub discipline, meaning it touches everything because if the human being, you know, is sort of the unit of production, <laughs> right. And yes. if we care about, I mean, I care about more than justice, but if we care about like leveraging our human capital and harnessing our, our human capital, you cannot do that without understanding the brain and taking really, really good care of it and nurturing it so that it can function better uh, and training it so that it can do the tasks that you or your institution or your company wants it to do. So, I mean, I just think it, it's so broad that there's an opportunity for it to touch everything. And I fully expect that to happen. That's true of psychology as well. Psychology and neuroscience really are these just hub di- disciplines. And where I am is I sort of am at the intersection of the two. I'm what you call a cognitive neuroscientist which is where cognitive psychology meets how the cells and systems in our brain work. So I just, yes, I think that there's, just given how important it is for human functioning, human happiness, human productivity, wellness is until everything becomes robotic. It's just, it's going to be key. It's going to be key. And even then with AI, you know, we're still going to have to have neuroscientists doing this work.
1: Yes. And other than the heart, what could be more important than the brain and maybe they're equally important because they work, they work in tandem and I can see, Where you fit into that expression of the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. You had two parents who were psychologists. That's right. And and there you are. Well, Jess, this has been fantastic. I'm sure our listeners will agree. I would like you to let them know how they could find out more about you, your teaching, your research, speaking engagements, anything else that you want to have them know about. This is the time to do that, please.
0: Okay, well, that's great. Well, first, Jeff, I want to thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun. I really do love doing these things. And I'm just so passionate about getting the word out about this, because I'm always surprised at how little people know about the brain, about sleep, things like this, how important it is. And I think that's why, you know, in addition to being a college professor who has a very busy research lab, I've gotten involved in a lot of corporate activities, because I want to help people learn how to apply this to their business models. And I want employees to be healthier and happier and more productive. And so, yes, I mean, for, since 2007, I've been doing a lot of, it's mainly professional speaking. It's around leadership or around innovation, around general wellness. It's been really rewarding Excellent, helping companies, you know, train their leaders or helping them really innovate in different ways. So I do some consulting and some coaching, but it's mostly professional speaking these days. And I've worked with basically every industry there is for some reason, Investment banks, hedge funds—I've been really popular with them, which I never expected. I'm also popular in healthcare, insurance. I was expecting that a little bit more. Yes. A lot of pharma, tech, gaming—that's been really fun. So I've worked with a lot of different industries, and of course, I kind of tailor my, the sessions to their unique needs. And the best way to get a hold of me is at my website, which is simply jessicapayne.com.
1: Yes, Payne is P-A-Y-N-E. Jessica. That's right. Payne. Okay. That is terrific. Well, thanks again, Jess. It's been a pleasure. I'm going to digest some of this with my brain. I'll listen to it again so I fully can register it because you said repetition is important. Absolutely key. All right, thank you.
0: All right, thank you again.
1: This concludes part two of our two-part series with Dr. Jessica Payne. If you missed part one, please check out episode number 53 of Looking Forward, which you can find on Red Circle or many other podcast hosting sites. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. I also hope that you'll tell others about our show. If you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, jeff-ostroff.com. That's J-E-F-F-O-S-T-R-O-F-F. Com. This is Jeff Ostroff, inviting you to join us again next time on Looking Forward.